Hi, this is Feed, Play, Love, the parenting podcast that you can fit in your pocket. Short, informative and interesting interviews about everything from toilet training to how emotion coaching works. I'm your host, Siobhan Hunt. The next interview is one of the diamonds from our archive. Enjoy. Aspect Australia estimates that one in every 100 Australians has autism. Discovering that your child is on the autism spectrum can be confronting and challenging. What do you do with this information? What does it mean for your child? And now that you have a diagnosis, how do you get the right treatment? We'll speak to both experts and parents who have lived experience of having children with autism. So far, we've looked at a parent's journey to diagnosis and what being on the spectrum means. Today, in part three, we'll look at the path after diagnosis. Sarah Crook is a service provider with Aspect, Australia's leading support organisation for people with autism. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Siobhan. Thanks for having me. Is there one person that you start with that can give you a plan of the best different types of therapies that could work together? Not really. And I guess that's that, you know, that's a problem in itself. There are so many options and it can just be so confusing for families. From diagnosis, I suppose, you know, a paediatrician or psychologist may give them some contact numbers um, once they've had their initial appointment of where to go for information. And the first stop I would always say is through to the Autism Advisor Program. They are the ones who, I guess, you know, support families to get the Helping Children with Autism package, which provides some funding for families. They will also have an interview with the family about what services are available within their area. And all therapies or services that come under that program have to be approved to be able to provide through that Helping Children with Autism package. So that would be the place to start, but they won't necessarily tell a family, you know, this is your best option. They'll kind of give them the list of things. That's their role is to let them know what's out there. And then it's up to the families to, I guess, find out a little bit more for themselves. Another way that families can go is to what's called the Early Days Workshops, which is a really good way for families to get some information early on. It's for families of children zero to seven years. So it's normally that sort of early diagnosis and that gives some free information and support. So they'll actually get some ideas there too in terms of what they should look for when choosing um, a service provider. How important is early intervention? How much difference can it make? Oh, Siobhan, it is, it's extremely important. You know, we really see that the best outcomes if children are getting diagnosed early and are receiving really good quality support with their families and it just, yeah, it can make that path so much easier and, you know, we, we just see great results when, when they're getting that early intervention. What does early intervention mean? Does is, is it mean around a certain age or before a certain age? No, not really. I guess it's just getting in as early as we can. So we know that children are diagnosed um, at different ages on the autism spectrum. So it's really just as soon as we've got that diagnosis or even as families are on the path to diagnosis, just seeking out intervention is what's important. And by intervention, are we talking about speech pathologists, occupational therapists, what kind of intervention makes a big difference? And when we speak about that difference, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the difference between a child who's unable to speak being able to speak? Yeah, look, I, it's really different, I guess, 
for different families and for different children, we have to realise that, you know, the spectrum is so broad. So I guess when I talk about intervention, I'm meaning it's the families, you know, getting involved with, with something that's going to work for them and work for their child to have some positive outcomes. And those positive outcomes may be varied. So it may be a child, yes, who's not speaking and they may be, you know, seeing a speech pathologist who is helping them to, um, you know, work on some more functional communication with their child. And what are the, I know that, it, that as you say, there's a very broad spectrum and different levels of um, challenges that children need to overcome or are trying to overcome, but can you give us an idea of the most effective treatments in a general sense that people can use? Of course, yeah. I think, um, you know, best practice tells us that when you're looking at interventions, it needs to be something that's firstly individualised for the child. So it's, I guess, looking at the child's strengths, looking at their areas of need, and then it's addressing those in relation to the core deficits of, say, being on the autism spectrum. So whether that's in communication, you know, some of those social skills aspects, you know, managing emotions, it can just incorporate so many different areas. We also know that the most successful interventions are ones that involve the family, so what we might call family-centred. And and that isn't just asking the family what they want, but it's actually looking at the reality of family life and, you know, making sure that interventions are going to work in with that. So it's not about saying you need to sit down and do two hours of homework with your child a night to make this work because we know the reality is that's probably going to be too hard and is going to cause a lot of stress for that family. So it's very much working within their realms, working within, you know, their cultural beliefs or just in their, you know, their own beliefs as a family unit um, and making sure that the intervention is matching that for them. I guess on top of that as well, we talk about intervention which really needs to build capacity and by that it can be building capacity of family members. So making sure that, you know, it's not a therapist just walking in or, you know, you're going to see a therapist and, and you're child might see them for 30 minutes and you walk out and you know you may get a quick rundown of what's happened but that's it and nothing happens in between we want to make sure that families are empowered so that they'll be able to work with their child in the times that they're with them because the reality is say going to a therapist once or twice a week is, is not necessarily going to make big changes so any intervention that families go down needs to have that element of okay well what are you going to teach me what am I going to learn so that I can be made making sure I'm putting this into practice into our everyday life. And, and I guess that's the next important thing is that we really say that intervention needs to be embedded into daily routines. Um, you know, it has to be meaningful. It's got to be functional. So in terms of, say, communication, teaching a parent to, you know, pull two items out of a fridge to give their child a, a visual choice that the child points to is actually speech pathology and they're doing it themselves. And that's what we want to do. We want to make sure that we're embedding it into their daily life. And when you speak about the family being involved in treatment, are you talking about every member of the family or is it mainly centred on the primary caregiver? Yeah, look, I guess it does differ for each family. We would aim to have, you know, that core family unit involved because we know that with more consistency, we see better results as well. Generally, though, we, we're working with the primary caregiver and in most circumstances, that may be a mum who's at home with a child. But 
certainly it's important to make sure that other family members are engaged in that intervention. One, that they're understanding it and the purpose of things and that, that they also then feel confident to do things too because, you know, it's not just one person raising that child. It's, you know, normally a bigger family unit around that. So there's, I mean, I guess there's options out there. So um, some organisations might be doing things for fathers or there might be, you know, grandparents training and workshops, just trying to link everybody in. And I'm just trying to picture as well, I think sometimes when people hear the word um, treatment or therapy, they might think that they are things that they need to do that is like homework. But could you give me a few more examples of how it might work into the everyday? So, for example, are there opportunities when you're getting your child to just get ready to leave the house, like brush their teeth and get dressed? Are there things that you can do in that context that are equal to doing a, a, a speech therapy with someone outside of the home? Oh, most definitely. And I think sometimes it's just being shown, you know, how to do it or what to say. So it, it may be as simple as, say, a parent limiting their language, making it really simple so the child understands what's expected of them during that morning routine or, you know, showing them some pictures of what they need to do. It may be a parent modelling words so their child can actually hear the words and doing that really simply. So if a child's, you know, they're not yet talking, they might be making some sounds, it would be, you know, like brush teeth or, you know, toilet, just making it really simple for them. And I guess it's almost like stepping back to as children are first learning to talk and how we interact with them. It's just doing it as they're a bit older and really keeping it simple and breaking it down. One of the other really important areas I think that people don't necessarily think about is play. And, you know, a child's main occupation is play and that is how they learn about their world. So it's always really good in terms of, you know, if you're going to see people that things are play-based as well. And, And getting down and being able to play with your child, you can just work on so many different skills, you know, whether that is that communication or getting that child, you know, tuned into you a little bit more socially, learning routines is Yes, so many things you can do. Sarah, a friend of mine whose son has been diagnosed with autism showed me a brush and had this technique where she had to brush his skin, I think, or outside of his clothes. I think it was every two hours. And at the time, as an outsider, I have to say, I thought that was a little bit weird. And obviously, I wasn't judging her, but I was thinking that. What's the science behind that? I mean, is that something that you have seen as a treatment and how do people know that a therapy is scientifically proven given autism is such a broad spectrum and there's still so many unknowns with it? I mean, have you heard of that particular treatment? Yeah, that, it's probably the TheraPressure protocol or the TheraPressure brushing program. So a lot of occupational therapists will actually recommend this treatment. It's normally used for children that um, what we say are tactile defensive. So they have more difficulty tolerating touch sensations and are extremely sensitive or defensive to that. So, um, you know, they don't like being touched, may freak out, become anxious and quite emotional. Occupational therapists will recommend it to try and desensitise. Now, I 
guess the thing is this is part of sensory integration type therapy through occupational therapists and there isn't a lot of research to say that it does work. So there isn't really a scientific base for that. But, you know, I totally understand it's very hard for families when they receive this diagnosis. They're going to want to try everything to really help their child. So one thing that we would recommend is um, having a look at the Raising Children Network website. It's actually a government-funded website and you can get to it just by typing in raisingchildren.net.au. On that website, there's actually a section on autism and they have some intervention um, information. There's almost like an A to Z. So you can click on the letter of something you might be looking at and it will actually tell you what evidence there is behind that, that therapy or that particular intervention you're looking into. So that's certainly something that we would recommend families going to. And then on top of that, families just need to think, okay, you know, is there a risk to doing this intervention? Because, you know, there are some therapies that have been used that potentially could cause some sort of risk to the child. You know, is there a cost? Is it something I can maintain? You know, brushing every two hours is very difficult, especially if the child goes to school because then someone else may have to do that. So they're the sorts of questions we would be encouraging families to ask before kind of going down different paths. Are there any particular therapies that you've heard of that are completely dodgy? The ones that, is there regulation, I guess, because as you say, there are so many options. Who's regulating the the options Mm. that parents can choose from? Like, are there ones that are just downright dodgy? Yeah, look, I mean, we've certainly heard of families who have gone overseas to do certain things like such as collation therapy, which where they propose that there's too many metals in the body and then children go to actually have those metals removed. I mean, something like that could be potentially harmful for a child. And so when I was saying parents asking the question, is there a risk? Yes, there is a risk for something like that. So there are things out there and and you will find them on the internet. And I guess that's where coming back to something like the Raising Children Network really does help families, you know, to to find out a bit more about it and what is the evidence and what is the risk. So they actually have a risk scale on that too. And and also they talk about cost of service with um, with that website. So families just get a bit more information before they make decisions. Now, obviously, each therapy would have a a different cost associated with it. But if a family has a child who's just been diagnosed, is there a way of working out what the financial impact will be and how much funding is available? I mean, you have to have an official diagnosis, don't you, before you can get financial assistance? You do, that's right. Yep. So the first step is getting that diagnosis. And then I said, as, as I said before, going through to that autism advisor program. Um, currently for children um, within New South Wales, as long as they're not within, so with NDIS, things are changing. And we've seen that sort of rolled out in the Hunter region. And then in Sydney, we, they're now looking towards sort of Blue Mountains um, and Nepean. So that will change things slightly. But currently, any child under the age of six who receives the diagnosis on the autism spectrum is eligible for $12,000 and that needs to be spent by their seventh birthday and they can only spend they sort of get 6,000 can be spent in one financial year. Now in terms of I guess a path and how much it costs for families 
I think that's a really hard question. I don't have the answer for that. There certainly has been, you know, some work done into it in terms of, you know, what would it cost? But it really depends as well on what path families go down for choosing intervention. And we know that some are a lot more expensive than others. So, you know, for example, if you were to go and do an applied behavioural analysis or ABA, that tends to have higher costs involved and there's a lot more hours involved in that program. Whereas if you came to, say, an early intervention service through us, you may only be seeing a therapist or, you know, a service provider once a week, but then we're really working on that building capacity in the meantime. So when they say to families you need to spend about 20 hours a week on intervention and that's best practice for early intervention it doesn't mean being one-on-one with a therapist for 20 hours it's including all of those things that you're doing in the daily routines like we spoke a little bit about earlier you're listening to kindling conversation we're speaking with sarah crook a service provider with aspect australia's leading support organization for people with autism and we're talking about what you do after diagnosis, how you find the right therapies for your child. Sarah, finally, is it likely that children will need less intervention as they get older? That's what we hope for. Um, And I guess, you know, the, the priority for us is really working on a child's functional skills early on so that they can become more independent as they get older. But, you know, we do know that there's some sorts of supports that are still needed as as people get older and that's something that you know Autism Spectrum Australia is really looking at at the moment in terms of how they're supporting people um, you know once they actually leave school and then go into the workforce. And Aspect has a new website is that correct Launchpad that that deals with all of these questions for older people as well? That's right yep it's very new Um, it's definitely worth having a look at Yeah, so I'd I'd encourage people if they were interested to go and have a look at it. Sarah, um, what we might do is we'll take quite a few of those uh, links that you've talked about. We'll put them on our website, kindling.com.au. Sarah Cook, thank you so much for speaking with us today. That's fine. I was just going to say, Siobhan, if anyone else did have questions related to autism, they can also contact our 1800 Aspect number um, and that will then, you know, sort of give them some general autism information and they can be put through to, um, you know, the the teams that they might need to talk to, whether it's early intervention or school or, or into adulthood. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. Thanks, Siobhan. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.